God promised to bring them here to the mountain, and here they are, but what's going to happen now? And what we see is important for us, that God intends to do more than just save these people, and us too. He has more in mind than just saving us and delivering us. Okay, I'm going to read most of Exodus 19, skip a few verses for the sake of brevity, and uh, then we'll pray. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you out on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has said we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits with the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain, or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. All right, now verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a very thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people can't come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. Do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. All right, let's pray together. Holy Father, we pray that uh, if you are real and this word is true, that you would show us wonderful things about you in this word. I pray these things confidently that you will do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Anyone ever heard of the town of Zetiste, Serbia? I actually don't know how to pronounce it very well, but it's Z-E-T-I-S-T-E. Anyone? I didn't think so. It's, it's a very small village uh, known, if it's known at all, for rather bad things that have happened there. In fact, a councilman recently said, uh, only negative reports on various farm diseases, monstrous floods, murders, and landslides have ever really come from our village. And so to counter this rather negative history and image, the town uh, decided in 2007 to build a 10-foot bronze statue 
of a man the village felt uh, represented their power, their uh, desire to overcome their harsh uh, circumstances and background, a statue of someone uh, that inspired them to, to rise to new heights. And so in 2007, in the town of Zatistia, Serbia, they built a statue of Rocky, a fictional American hero. Now, um, it's a little funny and a little sad, but the reality is uh, some of us don't much like our histories either. Family histories, personal histories. Uh, some of us work really hard to erect impressive facades to show the world who we are, or rather, who we want people to think we are. And some of us latch tenaciously desperately onto various causes and teams and success and hobbies and looks and all various manner of things in order to establish an identity for ourselves, to make an identity for ourselves, because it seems that whoever we are, we're not enough. That whoever we are, we're either not enough or we're not good enough. Many of us, it seems, suffer bad case of a diminished identity. And it's often the case that Christians suffer from this uh, because they think their story, or the Christian story for them, stops at salvation. That God delivers them, brings them to himself, and then there's nothing left for them. And so they have to finish writing the rest of the story themselves. But we're going to see tonight that God actually has quite a bit for us. And if uh, whether you're here tonight as a Christian or someone who's not, I believe this will be beneficial to you. So what we're going to see tonight is that God calls us to be his precious people with a special purpose. Calls us to be his precious people with a special purpose. And I can't say precious people too many times without starting to laugh myself. So uh, get over it, and I'll try to myself. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, being his precious people uh, with a special purpose by access to intimacy. All right, so first, uh, his precious people. And after God uh, brings the people to the mountain, and they spend three verses, it seems, getting settled as Moses goes up on the mountain, God speaks. He speaks to Moses and says, hey, I've drawn you near. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And I want to emphasize that last part, brought you to myself. Uh, the book is called Exodus, which means God brought them out. And so far, that's sort of been the emphasis of the story, getting them out of their terrible predicament of slavery. Uh, but God sees the matter rather differently or somewhat more completely. I have brought you out in order to bring you to me, to draw you near. I've not merely liberated you so you can go and do whatever you want. I brought you near to me for the purpose of relationship. And then we see that only delights, not only draws them near, but he delights in them. We see this in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And this phrase, uh, treasured possession, it's really interesting. It's actually a uh, very kingly language. It's a royal language. It means in, in the great king's treasury of all his uh, various spoils, silver, gold, it was his most precious commodity. That's the phrase that's being used here. And actually, it's described in Deuteronomy 
chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, uh, God says this about his royal treasury, his treasure possession. You are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples, I could have chosen anyone I wanted to, I chose you. Not because you were more in number, not because you were stronger. In fact, you were few. Uh, but because the Lord loves you. There was nothing about the Israelites in particular that deserved this, that merited this out of his own kingly, loving heart. He chose them and loved them and delighted in them. This is what uh, some have called the Oprah effect. When Oprah likes something, automatically it's more valuable. I'm serious. So I've read Anna Karenina. It's a fine novel. It's like every Russian novel. It's long and painful. And in 2004, this 19th century classic, it's true, they're all long and painful. You find me one that's not. Um, I'm not saying they're not good. This 19th century classic uh, became the number one bestseller in America because Oprah decided to make it one of the books on her book club. Uh, in 2007, this company that did $3,500 worth of sales a day, they made like little small lights and magnifying glasses. She endorsed them, and their sales skyrocketed to $97,000 a day. That afternoon, that very afternoon. It's the Oprah effect. She has the power and the cachet to make things that don't seem very valuable to all of a sudden be much more valuable. And God seems to do that. These people... There's really nothing special about them. They were slaves in Egypt. And God, out of the goodness of his heart, delights in them and treasures them and finds them to be the most important thing in his treasury. But all this, this delight and drawing near, comes with a duty in verse 5. It comes with a responsibility. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession. And this should raise some questions if you're a careful reader. Um, does this mean... God doesn't really love them if they don't obey? Does this mean they're not saved if they don't do what he's supposed to? How do we think about this? And here's what we need to know, a couple things. First, they've already been saved. God has already brought them out and brought them to himself. He brought them out before he ever called them to live for him. So he's brought them out, and now he calls them to live for him. But he has brought them into a relationship and like all relationships, this one requires something called reciprocity. You know, a relationship's not a relationship if it's just one-sided. That's not a relationship. And God has been good and faithful to them. And now uh, they are to reciprocate by being faithful in return. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. It means they should trust him. And trust in God looks like obedience, faithfulness. Now the problem here is... Uh, they're called to obey and keep the covenant, this relationship. And, and the problem is they don't. We'll look at that in the rest of the book. They don't. Not only in the rest of this book, actually in the rest of the entire book, they don't. Nowhere in the Old Testament do they really keep the covenant. In fact, no one does. Actually, not a single one of us does. Keeps the covenant as we should. Only one person has, and that's Jesus, the perfect Israelite, who came and perfectly kept the law. He kept the covenant perfectly. So what does this mean for us? Are we really his treasured possession? Is he just a big Santa Claus in the sky that likes everyone? Or does he really count us as treasured possession? Does it depend on us or on him? And here's, what, here's how it works. Jesus kept the covenant perfectly. And by trusting in him, being united to him, uh, we have 
his beauty, his record, his righteousness. So that what God says about Israel here, Peter says about us. We read that earlier in First Peter 2. You're a chosen people for his own possession. Once you were not God's people, but now you're God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have. We keep the covenant by trusting in Jesus who kept the covenant. So this is important. If you're a Christian, God declares you, you, weary, worn, tired people, to be his precious, beloved child. And this is irrespective of your past, whatever it is you may have done, what kind of family you grow up in, and irrespective of your performance in the past, or even now, if you're trusting in Christ, here it is, treasured possession, beloved, greatly desired and delighted in. Now, guys, you may have some trouble with this. God thinks I'm precious. I'm delighted in. Uh, I think I'm going to be sick. That's, that's really nice and all. But So, guys, you remember when you were growing up and, you know, you wanted to play catch with your dad and you sort of wanted to, but he was just too busy. All right? God's never too busy. He, he always wants to spend time with you. He always wants you. He loves you and delights in you and wants to be with you. And this is who we are in Jesus if we're a Christian. This is what God the Father thinks of you. Now, here's the question. Is this what you think of yourself? Is this how you, if you're a Christian, think of yourself? If you're not a Christian, I'm not asking you to think this way, to sort of follow along. Or are you being defined every day by your past? by your current performance, by what you think other people think about you? What are you being defined by? By what the world thinks about you? By what you think about you? Or by what the Father has said is true of you? He has appraised you as beautiful and precious to him. And we're not only his precious people, and I don't want to say that phrase almost anymore. We're done with that phrase. But we're also ones that have a special purpose. We're people that have a special purpose. And we see this come out in verse 6 that we are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And we see here that God is calling us to serve him. We're called to serve God. This is what a priest does. I'm not going to go into great detail about what a priest does. Uh, But simply put, a priest is called to know God and to serve him. And it's important for you to note here that this is not the job description of just a few people in this text. It's not just Moses. It's everybody, all the people. 600,000 of them at the foot of the mountain. God saying, they are all my priests. All of them. And this is important because you need to hear that God didn't bring you to himself, didn't set you free so you can spend the rest of the life serving yourself. Now, none of us that are Christians actually think completely that way, but sort of. I'm sort of free to do what I want now. I mean, he'll forgive me and... Got to make my way. God in Christ saved you to draw you near so that you could serve him. So that you might serve him and know him. And show him to others. That's what something else a priest does. And they're called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And you're thinking, well, how do I show the world what God's like? What do, how do I show others what God is like? And the simple answer of this text, and I didn't say it was easy. It's simple, but it's hard. So you're called to be holy. And uh, if you don't know the word holy or what it means, or you don't like the word, I'll give you another one. You probably won't like it anymore. Called to obedience. 
If you don't like that word any better, I'll, I'll give you something else. You're called to be like God. You are called to show God to the world, to others, by being a holy nation, by being like God. Now, we'll talk about this in two weeks when we come back. When we study Exodus 20, this sort of all fits together, Exodus 19 and 20. God is calling his people to be a special kind of people. And in Exodus 20, he's going to explain what it looks like to be like him in the Ten Commandments. And we think, even us that are Christians, we do this. Deep down in our polluted psyches, we think, man, obedience and doing what God wants me to, that is soul-crushing. People are going to think I'm judging them. They're going to think I'm hypocritical because I am a hypocrite because I don't do what I'm supposed to half the time. And what we need to know for now is, look at it more in two weeks, holiness is being like God in his beauty and in his love. And we're called to do that. We're called to grow into that so that we show others what God is like. And this means by nature that if you're a Christian, you are called to be different. Now, this is very interesting and perhaps a little uncomfortable for some of you because the last thing some of you want to be is different. I mean, you want to be different because you want to stand out as special, but you don't want to stand out as, like, weird special, right? And you don't want people to think poorly of you. You want to stand out as, oh, that's a cool person, not, oh, that's a crazy person. And uh, it mortifies some of you to think that God might be calling you to stand out as someone that's a little bit different. And uh, why? Why does it mortify you? I mean, I understand you don't want to stand out. But is it because you place more value on what other people think of you than what God does? We've just talked about this. He delights in you. You're his treasured possession. He loves you. There's nothing more valuable in the treasury to him than you. And yet, there's nothing more important to you than what other people think about you. Or perhaps it's the case that you've got the idea that being different is just being weird. You've got this perverted sense of what holiness looks like because you grew up in the church or because you've seen the church from a distance and you see people that when they think they're giving you holiness, they're really giving you hypocrisy or judgmentalism. And you're thinking, I don't want anything to do with that. Perhaps you're dealing with a mistaken notion. God's not calling us to be weird for the sake of being weird. He's certainly not calling us to be hypocrites. He's calling us to become more like himself in his beauty and his life and in his love. And when we do that, we will, like a priest does, share God with others. This is what a kingdom of priests and a holy nation does. God made these people different and set them in the middle of the ancient world. Set them literally, like, really in the middle of the ancient world between all the superpowers and said, your job is to sit there so everyone can look at you and say, oh, they're weird, a little different. What's going on there? Hmm, they live in. That's, that's really interesting. I wonder what that's like. And really ask those kind of questions. I'm not kidding. That's what he did. He put them in the middle of the ancient world for that reason. That the watching world may look at them and try to figure out, who is this God that makes them different? And that's what we're called to as well. Uh, Peter writes the same thing in 1 Peter 2 that we read earlier, that we're called to share, to proclaim the excellencies of God, that the watching world might see our good deeds and glorify God. They're, people are watching. And you know, if you're in the room tonight and you, you're not a Christian, you can just go ahead and admit it, right? You're watching. Yeah, I mean, you want to know if this is for real or, or if we're crazy or if we're really for real crazy. <laughs> Whatever the case is, I mean, you're here because you're somewhat interested. And you're wondering, 
the world is wondering, is God really real? And if he is really real, will he make a difference in this world in people's lives? Because if he doesn't, I don't care. I just don't care. If he's not real enough to change people's lives, then why do I, why do I care? We're called to share God with others. Now, um, I've been talking about calling some. We're called to be those that serve God, that know God, that reflect his holiness and share him with others. But we have a really strange way as Christians talking about calling. We talk about calling in very strange, individualistic, mysterious, esoteric ways sometimes. Like God's going to send us a letter in the mail or we're going to get some secret sign. So this is a story along those lines. It's a story of a farmer who was planning, plowing rather, and when he looked up, he saw a plane flying through the sky. He was uh, sky running, writing the letters GPC in the sky. So he thought it over and determined that it was a sign from God telling him to go preach Christ. So he told the folks at his uh, small rural church, and they gave him the opportunity to preach that Sunday. And after he spoke a rather long-winded, boring, confusing sermon, a fellow parishioner came to him and said, I think maybe God meant go plant corn. Yeah, We have all kinds of strange ways of trying to figure out what God's call is for our lives. Some of you may be wondering, what's he talking about? If you stick around Christians long enough, you'll hear this, people trying to figure out, what is God calling me to do? Well, one thing God is very clearly calling you to do in black and white in these pages and throughout the book is to do a special purpose that he's called you to do, which is to know him, reflect him, and share him to the world. This is God's plan for his people for all of history. From Genesis 12, when he tells Abraham, you and your people will be a blessing to the nations to the very end of the book. This is God's plan for making himself known. You, his people, this is your purpose. I'm not saying God's not calling you to other things. Some of He's calling you to medicine. Some of He's calling to music. But if you're a Christian, wherever you go, whenever you're there, this is always your call. And you don't get a free pass just because you're in college. Sorry. And actually, this is no more of an obligation for me than it is for you. Somebody's like, well, this is your job, Pastor Guy. It is my job. It's your job, too. Now, the problem is, uh, some of you may be thinking, I don't want to do this. I mean, you're actually being honest. <laughs> you're actually being honest, maybe, some of you. But I actually don't want to do that. Like, it's hard and it hurts, and it's, I don't want to do it. And some of you are thinking, I can't do this. I just, I don't think I can. And the question before us we're going to wrestle with for a few more minutes is, how do we actually come to do this naturally? And I don't mean naturally like it becomes easy. I don't mean naturally in some slick way that the world would say, oh, Oh, we like you anyway. Uh, I don't mean naturally like that. I mean genuinely, like so that you don't feel like you're a hypocrite, like it's real in your life. It, it really just sort of comes out of you. And then we have all kinds of excuses and concerns about this. Will I? But I'm not even holy myself, and I'm supposed to show people where God is holy, and I don't want to be holy. I want to keep sinning because it's fun. It's awesome. I just want to manage it a little bit. Not so much. And, I mean, we have all these internal issues that we're wrestling with. We don't feel qualified. It doesn't feel real in our lives. We don't have the desire to do it. We're afraid people are going to reject us. It's actually a much bigger problem. You probably haven't thought about it. Much bigger problem is right in our text. And actually the answer to that text, that question, that problem, actually answers all your questions too. There's a much bigger problem in this text. And the answer to that 
problem answers all your problems too, I think. And it's the problem of access. Did you notice that access is denied here? I mean, it's sort of strange. God in verse 4 says, I brought you out of Egypt to be near me. And then from verse 16 on, it's this complicated dance of, hey, I'm coming down. Get ready. And you may not have noticed it, but Moses runs up and down this mountain. He's an 80-year-old man. He runs up and down the mountain three times. The last time, you do see it pretty clearly. He comes up the mountain, and God immediately says, Moses, go down and tell them. And Moses is like, but I already told them. You just told me to tell them, and I told them. And God says, go down anyway. Go down anyway, because if they come up by accident, I'm just so holy, I'm going to destroy them. Like, it's just, they're going to get crushed. They can't handle it. Uh, What God is saying to the people through Moses is, uh, you just can't walk into God's presence. You just can't stroll right in there. I'm sorry, access is denied. And uh, this is a real problem, especially when we're called to know God and share him, right? God has told us that we're supposed to be a special people that know him well and share him with others. How am I supposed to share him if I don't even know him that well? At this point, all the Israelites know about God is he's really, really scary. And that impression's been made. God on a mountain, thunder, lightning. By the way, this is a really good argument for why you can trust the Old Testament. 600,000 people saw God on a mountain and heard God speak to Moses. And if at some point this wasn't true and Moses wrote this book, they had every right to say, you're a crazy maniac. We're going to take you out in the desert and stone you. Like that did not happen. Instead, Moses claims that all of them saw. Anyway, they see this, and what they get is God is really holy and scary, but nothing more. And you can know God's holiness from a distance, but you cannot know his love. You can know his holiness from a distance, but not his love. And you can't come to reflect him or be like him unless you're near him. You need access. We need access. And we see in this chapter how access is granted. They don't really get all the way there, but we see the portrait of how it's granted. And it's granted in verse 10 by means of consecration. It's a funny sounding word. It means they're set apart and made pure and holy. And uh, ultimately, this is done by sacrifice. It's done by the sacrifice of Jesus that only cleanses us from the outside, but it cleanses us all the way through. It dresses us in the robes of Jesus so that when God sees us, he sees us as pure and righteous. And it comes also in verse 10 through a mediator. Again, Moses, Moses was dying for a cell phone. Moses runs up and down the mountain three times. God said this. People said that. God said this. People said that. Moses, go consecrate them. Back and forth, back and forth. That's how they had access. We have access to the person of Jesus, who made a way one time, didn't have to run up and down the mountain. He came down to make God known and he threw open the door to the Father's den forever for his children to come in. So in Christ, the perfect mediator, you are forgiven, perfectly consecrated. God sees you as righteous. You're allowed to come up the mountain. You're allowed to come into the Holy of Holies. You are, in fact, by Jesus, not just allowed to come in, you are brought in. You're brought in where you're known and treasured, and there you come to know God, and there you come to reflect him. It was uh, Easter break in 1997, 15 years ago, when you were small children, and I was a college student, actually a college graduate, and um, I was living in a small town at the time after college where I didn't really know anyone, 
It's my first job out of college. I didn't really have anything to do. And this guy that worked with me, I was just getting to know him, nice guy, invited me to his parents' house for Easter break. And this guy, Hugh Haskins, and I, uh, I mean, we had some similarities. But in upbringing, we couldn't have been much different. I was lower middle class poor, and uh, Hugh grew up in a, in a very nice, privileged, cultured society. And uh, it could have been potentially very embarrassing for me. I could have been denied access into any number of places we went. I ate, at a be- I ate at the best restaurant I've ever eaten in my life up to that point. I played at a prestigious golf course I never would have been allowed on. Once I did play, they should have kicked me off. I got access to this wonderful indoor tennis facility all year round. Um, and based on my own credentials, I shouldn't have been in there. And the family actually didn't know me at all. But because the son brought me in, the father spared no expense in lavishing upon me all the benefits that his family enjoyed. And not only did I enjoy them, I actually took to them. I liked them. I mean, I don't just like them. I mean, I've carried them with me for 15 years. Like, I, I did things then that I've carried with me, and they are a part of me now. I had my first seafood pasta with red sauce. I've never had one better, but it's still my favorite pasta. Some of my favorite books to this day are books I found in their library and read. And what happened that weekend is what often happens is that access to intimacy leads into imitation. I had access to intimacy with their family. And they were wonderful. And slowly, not even intentionally, I just began to sort of be like them, to enjoy things they liked. And that's the way it should be, that intimacy leads to imitation. When you are near to God the Father through Jesus, you will slowly but surely begin to be like him. You will. You'll begin to show him and share him and bring others to him. And this is access that's available to you through the person of Jesus. Whether you're tonight, here tonight, someone that doesn't know Jesus, the door is open. Trust Jesus. He will lead you into the Father. Or whether you're a Christian right now, halfway through this semester, three-quarters of the way through the school year, that feels like God is so far away. Yeah. The door is open. The Father never closes his door to you, child. Let's come back for a moment to the uh, issue of identity. We started with that. We suffer from a diminished identity. We're always trying to throw something into the hole to show the world who we are, to even figure out who we are. In this text, it's clear. We're a precious people with a special purpose, which is to know God and to make him known. So right now, this last month, these last few months, Where are you seeking to make your identity? Where are you digging? What are you building? What impressive edifices are you constructing for the world to see to show them who you think you are or who you should be? Who are you trying to be like? Who are you trying to become? Are you trying to become more like Jesus? Are you trying to become like the person that your daddy thinks will, do you think your daddy will approve of? You're trying to become the kind of person you think others will approve of? In Jesus, you're loved. You're valued. Delighted in. Cherished. You are already in. Half of you are struggling to build an identity because you're trying to get into something. You don't even know what you're trying to get into. You're trying to get into something. 
If you're a Christian, you are already in. You belong. You have a loving father. You have a great family. You have a world of siblings. You belong. And in Christ, you have a purpose. You're part of a plan, a great plan that stretches history. There's no more exciting plan. There's no bigger plan in human history than this. That the father would make himself known to all the world through his children. You get to be a part of that. You get to actually be close to the father, enjoying him while you do that. You get to do this with God, with others, for others. This is a great plan. I just want to invite you. Tear down your statues. Tear down your statues. Figure out what they are. Tear them down. And come to your Father through the Son and embrace your identity. Okay, let's pray together.